Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, a walk around the Quabbin to see who actually has water access and who's trying to change that. We'll hear an update from NEPM reporter Alden Bourne about the ongoing issues surrounding the reservoir and how Beacon Hill might be changing that shortly. And we'll talk about some of the most fun ways you can misspeak or sing with word nerd Emily Brewster as we continue down the list of questions and topics suggested by one of our listeners. But first, we read... We're doing this instead of Valentine's Day. Nice. Yeah. We made you our Valentine's. Yeah, will you, you could be, will you be our Valentine's? That will be it. You're our radio Valentine's today. Today Love on Valentine's that. Ash Wednesday. Yeah, right. Oh, that too. Okay. Yeah, we've really got a lot going on. <laughs> For nearly a decade, Amherst College has been putting on a literary festival showcasing high-profile authors and poets on campus and off. And this year's Lit Fest features comedian Aparna Narncharla, Amherst College, class of 2005. Aparna Nancherla is a comedian, writer, and actor. She's written for Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell and Late Night with Seth Meyers. Aparna was also named one of the 50 funniest people right now by Rolling Stone, the magazine. Not the band, Not but the they, band. I bet they would think that she's funny, too. Absolutely. Yeah. You may have watched Aparna as Grace, the belabored HR rep on the critically acclaimed Comedy Central show Corporate. She also has a half-hour special on the second season of The Stand-Ups on Netflix, as well as appearances on Late Night with Stephen Colbert, Two Dope Queens, Modern Love, Bob's Burgers, and lots more. You can hear her as the voice of Moon on Fox's The Great North, or as the voice of Hollyhock on BoJack Horseman. You can currently watch Aparna in The Drop on Hulu, or as Dr. Pocha on Lopez versus Lopez. We are also joined by one of the organizers of the Amherst College Literary Festival, Jennifer Acker, Amherst College, class of 2000. Jennifer is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Common and author of the debut novel, The Limits of the World, which was a fiction honoree for the Massachusetts Book Award. Her memoir, Fatigue, is a number one Amazon bestseller, and her short stories, essays, translations, and reviews have appeared in the Washington Post, Oprah Daily, and the Yale Review, among other places. Acker has an MFA from the Bennington Writing Seminars and teaches writing and editing at Amherst College, where she directs the Literary Publishing Internship and next week's Lit Fest. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so fun to be here. I'm an avid listener. Oh, oh no. we love it. <laughs> well, let's start with you then, Jen, because you're an avid listener and we definitely want to cater to the people that love us. Uh, we know Aparna is going to be a part of this uh, literary festival next week. Tell us who else you're excited about that will be part of this event at Amherst College. It's a great lineup this year. I'm very excited about so many people. Um, I will be interviewing Aparna, which I'm very excited about. So, um, you know, maybe that's top of the list, but there are so many <laughs> other uh, really wonderful people. Um, science writer Ed Young is coming. Um, so you may have read uh, his coverage in The Atlantic. We are our uh, presidential scholar this year is Natasha Trethewey, um, multiple time US poet laureate, um, wonderful memoirist and, uh, and poet. And then we have two wonderful poets, Ilya Kaminsky and Katie Ferris, uh, who will be joining us um, on Sunday afternoon to share uh, their poetry. The common interns and some alumni authors will have a moment in the spotlight to read uh, and share their original work. So we have some um, excellent other alumni authors in addition to Aparna who are coming for a different event. And then our kickoff event, I'm sort of working backwards in the schedule, is 
an event that we have every year in partnership with the National Book Foundation. And this year, it's also in partnership with the Jones Library of Amherst, um, in which we have Paul Harding, um, who won the Pulitzer Prize for Tinkers several years ago, and Justin Torres, who won the National Book Award this year uh, for his novel Blackouts. And so the two of them will be in conversation. They were both honored by the National Book Foundation this year, and that will be opening up the, the festival. So we can't wait for that. It unofficially starts next Thursday at the Powerhouse with a spoken word event for Amherst students and then goes Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of next week at Amherst College. And we're joined by one of the founders and organizers of the festival who's been giving us the rundown on this wonderful event, Jennifer Acker, as well as Aparna Nancharla, the wonderful comedian and actor who's also part of it. (laughs) Before we move to Aparna, Jen, what's the importance of having events that are student-driven as part of this as well? Because not every college would necessarily do that and make sure that there are events where student work is being showcased, student work is an active part of the festival itself. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. Uh, It's really very much in line with the college's mission um, as a small liberal arts college to have events that are catering to students and that showcase student work. And so from the very beginning, LitFest has included events that showcase student creativity and talent. The Spoken Word Festival is always a highlight. Some really talented students gather their nerves and get up in front of their peers um, and really give some knockout performances. So that's always been an exciting part of it. And then the, uh, the Common as a literary magazine, even though we are a global magazine publishing writers from around the world, we are staffed heavily by Amherst College students. Um, and so it makes sense for us to showcase the students who are working so hard day in and day out uh, on uh, on the magazine to give them an opportunity to share their creative work because all of them are burgeoning artists of, of some kind. So does that mean the common is Amherst Common because it's Amherst College is right on the common and you started the common and all these people at Amherst College are part of the common? Yes. <laughs> you heard it here first. Okay. I love it. We're talking about the, the Amherst Literary Festival, which begins next week, mostly Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And one of the people that will be featured that Jennifer Acker will be interviewing is comedian Aparna Nancharla. Now, Jennifer still is connected with Amherst College, so she can't maybe dish the dirt, but you can, Aparna. You are an Amherst College student. Uh, tell us what your time at Amherst College was like. Did you go there for comedy, like uh, Eugene Merman did down the street at Hampshire College, where he created his own comedy major? Major, yeah, I remember. I uh, I wish I could say I did. I, I was eager to try out for the improv group when I was at Amherst, but I did dip my toe into stand-up while I was a student there and maybe performed at one or two Marsh Coffee Houses, which were like the artsy open mic nights. Nice. But yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say my comedy career really took off in the Pioneer Valley, but if it would win more fans, I will say that. <laughs> well good, because that's who's listening to the show right now. People exactly in the people in the valley. So no, please go. I was going to say you you find out in, in her memoir that she was a psychology major and I, I was, was going to ask, did you write while you were at at Amherst, did you participate in any of of the writing things that were on campus? Yeah, I I did more like instead of kind of pursuing an English major, I went more the extracurricular writing route. Like I I wrote for Prism Magazine, which was sort of a literary magazine, and then uh, I think briefly was editor in chief uh, before a horrible scandal. No, uh, before <laughs> someone else took it over, and uh, and also ran the Amherst. 
satire magazine, which I also don't think is still in effect, but that was called The Hamster, which is an anagram of Amherst. Do you I think that they, they fell apart because your leadership was no longer there to keep them driving forward? I think maybe my leadership made them fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> Drove them my lack right of into the ground. <laughs> right, right into the material of your book. Good job. Aparna, you're living in L.A. now, right? Yes. And you're kind of from the D.C.-ish area, if I remember correctly? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So tell us what, what it, your impressions are of, of Amherst, Western Mass, your, your loves and hates of, of this region. I mean, I, I love New England in general. It's like very pretty. It's very cozy. Like I love a good bed and breakfast vibe. And I feel like Massachusetts <laughs> can serve that up quite well. I also just think the five college area is just kind of, um, I don't know, it's quirky in its own way. And I don't know, I don't think I've experienced another area quite like it. I just feel like it has its own character and flavor to it. That's like a little bit hippie, a little bit uh, sporty. It just has a little bit of everything. On the way, we'll mix words with the best of them with Merriam-Webster senior editor Emily Brewster and maybe a couple of egg corns. We'll put them all in one basket and we'll hear about which way and to whom the water is flowing around the Quabbin with NEPM reporter Alden Bourne. But next, more with Aparna Nancharla and Jen Acker, who will be at a lit fest at Amherst College next week. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. We're speaking with Aparna Nancharla, who is part of the Amherst Literary Festival, which begins next week, as well as Jennifer Acker, who will be interviewing Aparna Nancharla at that literary festival and welcoming and organizing so many other great literary figures. There are a lot of great writers who live here in Western Mass, a lot of them associated with Amherst. Tell us what it is about, uh, is it the Connecticut River that in the water here that makes it such a, a hotbed for great authors, Jen? Well, it's a wonderful place to live. Uh, so I think that that really draws people and keeps us here. Also, the five colleges provide a lot of opportunities uh, for people, whether you're teaching or maybe adjuncting or maybe like me, some combination of everything that like you went to school here and then you fell in love afterwards and you never left. <laughs> so, um, but I think there are a lot of reasons that people stay, but there are also wonderful you know, museums in the area. The natural beauty is inspiring, but you're right. There's some X factor. Maybe we can figure out what it is on this program. You guys should know, you interview all the authors. You, you, you tell me like, what, what, what is it that we're all here doing um, and enjoying so much? I don't know. I was going to say that it's mostly the winter that when it comes, we don't want to go outside. <laughs> and so you're forced to stay in with your projects and give them a real hard look and decide whether or not they live or die by spring. Yeah. <laughs> but climate Climate change seems to be shifting that just a little bit. Yeah. We need a little bit of suffering to hone great works. No, no. We talked about this with Ted Leo. We're not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> suffering is not necessary. For, well, the, the Puritans the would certainly mark. agree with you, but maybe we've right, moved right, beyond right. that. Hope, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, Aparna Nancharla, you are not just a comedian and an actor and a voice actor, but you are uh, an author and you have a book called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and imposter syndrome. It's wonderful. Yes, Thank we were looking you. over it. It's really funny. And I loved the prose in it so much. Thank you. That's so nice. When you talk to somebody at your level that done, has done these things that we mentioned in your intro here, it's hard for some people to imagine how anybody would have imposter syndrome when hearing a, an intro or a bio like that. But talk about your struggle with imposter syndrome, which I think pretty much almost everybody deals with at one level or another. 
Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's framed a lot of the way just that I've approached life, which is kind of from a place of self-doubt. Like I, I feel like the empowering, uh, you know, can-do American attitude would be like you get to a place in your career and you're like, um, I hope, you know, you guys were ready for me because I, I deserve to be here and here I am. And now we can finally like make something good. Whereas I've always been like, do I deserve to be here? Like, are you sure my invite wasn't an error? Like, I, I think I'm always... I'm always like kind of a little bit like tentative with opportunities. And I think in a way that's helped my comedy in that I'm always been a little bit on the sidelines, like taking everything in, kind of absorbing and and making that into its own perspective. But with age, I think you learn that nobody really knows what they're doing and you kind of just have to learn to fake it in your own way because that's essentially what everyone's doing. Right. In light of that, I feel like there are definitely some influences of your psychology degree, both on your writing and your comedy. Yes, (laughs) Could you you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I, people are always like a psychology major, but then you did comedy. What's that about? But I mean, psychology, I would say as a major is the most uh, navel gazy of the majors, (laughs) along with philosophy, probably. But I just feel like you can apply everything you learn directly to yourself and people you know. And I think I found that just like an engaging thing in and of itself. Whereas like, you know, history or law maybe sometimes felt a little bit more abstract or obscure. And what's funny about it? Well, I mean, history can be funny. The law is not that funny. Law is pretty funny sometimes. (laughs) Delving deep into your own psychology, that's that's funny. Yeah. I mean, Boston's bylaws about horses. Yeah, their stuff is funny too, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Though, yeah, I guess true crime is having a moment, so who am I to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to poo-poo the law. <laughs> and now Jennifer Acker, who is uh, one of the organizers of this literary festival happening at Amherst College next week, Friday through Sunday mostly, your novel, or your book, is not a novel, it has more to do with your relationship with fatigue and, and chronic fatigue. So we're talking about imposter syndrome with Aparna Nancharla and, and fatigue and chronic fatigue. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about your struggle with that and, and bringing that to the page. Yeah, so yeah, the, my, I wrote this sort of a short memoir about fatigue, about having chronic fatigue syndrome, um, which um, I've had for many years now, almost a decade, and it really changed my life um, in a, a you know in a, in a pretty serious way, and, and, and in a way that actually does dovetail with this conversation that I sort of had to pretend to be a well person most of the time, and I and I still am doing that. Um, I still have my job, I still write, I still try to do all the things that I did before, but I have to do them very differently. And but the the doing of them differently happens largely behind the scenes like that. I step out of things early so I can take a rest. I do things a little bit more slowly. I take naps. Um, I have to you know get a lot of sleep. So there's a lot of sort of behind the scenes things that happen just to take care of myself. And that does lead to a lot of self-doubt um, and you know should I really still be doing this uh, and and how much should I tell people about what I'm going through so uh, Aparna I really admire what you've put on the page in terms of thinking about your own 
um, mental health struggles and th thoughts about anxiety and coming at things with uh, with self-doubt. And I think that that's tremendously helpful and buoying for, you know, for other people who are thinking through and working through similar things. And so, yeah, I, I, I did try to be a little bit public um, about my struggles, which was nerve wracking um, to do. You know, I thought, am I going to get fired? Like, is my boss going to find out <laughs> that, I, you know, that, that I that I have this condition and I didn't tell anybody? Um, With all the clout so, you get from having a bestseller? Like, are you serious? Yeah, right. There's, there's psych. You published <laughs> a book at a college. That. They love that. It's like, you're on what list? Yes, thanks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Here's a track. It's called Tenure. But both of you have written memoirs. And Jen, you've also written a novel. Would you mind talking about, like, what drew you towards memoir instead of having these experiences inspire fiction instead? Well, for me, in, in this particular piece, I, I was so consumed with my own illness at a certain point that I couldn't write fiction. Like my, my, I was actually too tired <laughs> to, to write fiction. Um, so the the fatigue comes with a lot of brain fog, and just sort of difficulty thinking through things. And so for a while, I thought I would never write fiction again. That was difficult, and my own experiences in terms of just my daily life, like, and a lot of the memoir is about um, illness and marriage. Like, what happened? What happened to my marriage when I got really sick? How did we learn to take care of each other? Moments that were really scary, but also things that brought us closer together. Um, my husband also had a sort of a debilitating uh, condition for part of the time that, that I was sick. And so um, it never occurred to me to write fiction out of that experience because I just couldn't think farther than my own face. Like it was just um, a great act of solipsism, uh, you know, in, in a way um, there was just no uh, no other direction to go in but to uh, go inward, I guess. I kind of want Aparna's answer to my question about oh, <laughs> about doing memoir instead of fiction. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, for me as a stand-up, I primarily mine from my own life. So I think I was like, book assignment, I'm going to be writing about myself. I mean, I would love to write a novel one day, but I think it will still be auto-fiction at best. Character <laughs> will be named like... Naparna. <laughs> no one will ever know. Well, it's a pretty hot trend right now, so I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. <laughs> yes, yeah, it seems to be yeah, doing well. Aparna, I know you're in L.A. now, but you spent time here. You're an Amherst College alum. Uh, Amherst's rock god, Jay Maskus, just mm -hmm. trashed the restaurants of Amherst in a podcast. But what's the first place you want to go eat when you come back to your alma mater here in the Valley? Oh man, I I haven't been back in so long that I'm not sure if the places I know are still open, but, and now I'm blanking on the, oh, Antonio's. Ant I guess Antonio's, I gotta try to see how they're holding up yeah. <laughs> over the years. Legendary. Because I haven't been back in like a decade. So. It's it's still there and probably still it's pretty still much there. exactly the same. Although that's like when, <laughs> okay. when Harrison Ford is there at Amherst College and his son is is uh, graduating, that's where he goes to get a slice too. So you're in, you're in excellent oh, company. Good. I just remember they have one where they put tortellini on pizza. Oh yeah. It's like, no, no, they not a shred of self-doubt in this <laughs> recipe. No imposter syndrome here, pizza. Jen, is it weird? What's the experience like working where you graduated from? <laughs> yes, weird. Mm. It is. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's weird. It's weird in so many ways. You know, I, I, I graduated and then suddenly I was supposed to call my professors by their first names. And, you know, that was weird. And it's only gotten weirder since then. Um, and so, you know, I've, and now I get to feel incredibly old because I work with college students and they remind me all the time of how many years ago I graduated. But, uh, you know, in good news for a partner, my interns told me that she is the only cool alumni we have ever had of, of Amherst College. Wow. That's so, so they are wow. really excited. It is That's very kind. We're making it official. The coolest alumna of Amherst College ever, Aparna totally. Charla, returns totally. returns to Amherst College next week <laughs> for the Lit Fest, illuminating great writing and Amherst College's literary life. Aparna, after uh, Lit Fest, where will people be able to see you next besides on, on streaming platforms? We told them about that. Oh, I believe... I mean, they can still hear me on the Great North on Fox, but in terms of like live dates, I think I'm in Tucson next. <laughs> Tucson, the Southwest. We should arrange a comedy. Uh, coming in here to get here. a little bit of the cold and then immediately leaving. Yeah, enough yeah, of that. Immediately fleeing. <laughs> the dry heat. Aparna Nancharla will be part of the Amherst Lit Fest, illuminating great writing in Amherst College's literary life next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Aparna will be interviewed by one of the organizers, another alumna of Amherst College, uh, who is also a best-selling writer in and of herself of the, the memoir, Fatigue, Jennifer Acker. Thank you both so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having us. This was fun. Thank you so much. We should note that the Amherst Lit Fest is an underwriter, but that's not why we talk with them. We just love Aparna. Even more now, after reading her book and getting to talk with her, she is a gem. Soon, we'll chat with reporter Alden Bourne about the issues deep within the waters of the Quabbin Reservoir and how Beacon Hill may step in to provide assistance to those seeking to have access to its waters. And up next, hold me closer, Tony Danza. Words fail, buildings tumble, and we ensconce ourselves in Mondegreens and more with word nerd Emily Brewster. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEVM. Time for another word nerd segment with Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. We are going to talk about Mondegreens at the suggestion of the person that we also who gave us a bunch of suggestions last week and we used one of them last week and the self-declared word police from Montague Center. For those who aren't familiar with Mondegreens, Emily Brewster, what is a Mondegreen and why is it called such? A Mondegreen is a word or phrase that results from mishearing, especially something that's been recited or sung like the lyric that you just said, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Is a frequent mondegreen that people hear when they hear the Jimi Hendrix song, excuse me while I kiss the sky. (laughs) I have a personal story about this one. I, I was in sixth grade art class. It was calligraphy. And I was feeling good about my calligraphy. I don't know if everybody was, but I had a friend who was also feeling good about his calligraphy. And he challenged me to see who could write the nicest in calligraphy. And the thing he challenged, he said, our, he made our challenge, which was, excuse me while I kiss the sky. And I wrote out in my very best sixth grade calligraphy, excuse me while I kiss this 
guy. Oh my. <laughs> because I didn't know that I did I actually didn't even know the song really. Like I was vaguely, vaguely familiar with it. He had older siblings. He knew the song. <laughs> he was like all about it and he thought it was really ridiculous and stupid and funny that I had written excuse me while I kiss this guy in my best calligraphy. So do you feel mortified every time you hear either that song or that particular Mondegreen? No, I love it. Okay, I think good. it's it's such a funny, a funny story. Yeah. Why do we call it Amanda Green. There was a journalist. Her name is Sylvia Wright. And she wrote a column in the 1950s in which she recounted hearing this Scottish folk song. The name of the song is The Bonnie Earl of Moray. And she mishear, misheard, here's the real lyric. Oh, they have slain the Earl of Moray and laid him on the green. And she thought it was, oh, they have slain the Earl of Moray and Lady Mondegreen. <laughs> <laughs> and hence, this misheard lyric becomes the name of misheard lyrics, Mondegreen. Nice. Yes, that's where we get the word Mondegreen. Do you two have Mondegreens that you have done or do do or just like? I mean, of course, now that I'm on the spot, like I can't think of any ones that I naturally heard. But my favorite one is the one from Outcast, Which is? I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. I am four eels never meant to make your daughter cry. I am several fish and not a guy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. I feel like almost every song I hear is a Mondegreen because I'm like not really paying attention to exactly what they're saying until I've heard the song like a thousand times. And so I just sing whatever it sounds like. But I will say there is a book. Excuse me while I kiss this guy and other misheard lyrics by Gavin Edwards. And there are a lot of fun ones in that book. I mean, the one that I know I don't actually miss here, but do use a lot is sweet dreams are made of cheese. <laughs> who am and, I to disagree? Yeah. Then they add who am I to disagree at the end of it. Who am I to disagree? Another one that Gavin Edwards quotes in the book that I love in Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, it's uh, the girl with colitis goes by. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> A girl with colitis go by. The girl with moderate to severe colitis <laughs> goes by. Yeah, so. That's a whole series of books. That's actually the first time that I encountered the misheard Jimi Hendrix lyrics because we were having this talk yesterday where I really pay attention to Yes. Lyrics. But Khalees, there must have been a case where you, you thought that a lyric said one thing and it actually said another if oh, you yeah, pay that sure. much attention. But I, I, I'm literally going to spend the rest of our time together racking my brain <laughs> to figure out where it was. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I know I must have done it a million times, too, but I can't think of one that really stood out to me. My partner's is from Creedence Clearwater Revival. There's a bathroom on the right. Oh, and then there is, I don't. I still don't know what the real lyrics is. The Springsteen slash cover of it, wrapped up like a douche, another roller in the I night. It, I, I think it is deuce, but it sounds like douche. Wrapped up like a douche, another roller in the night. I don't know. Rolled up like a deuce, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's, it's a deuce. It's a deuce. Yeah, which I still, but what does that even mean? Uh, who knows? I, I don't, I've never understood that. That one's problematic. The lyric itself <laughs> is problematic yeah, because yeah. the real word isn't transparent, I don't think. No. No. What about you, Emily no. Brewster? Were there ones that you misheard? Um, Apart from, well, excuse definitely me while I kiss the, this guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a colleague who, you said Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I, I have a colleague who thought it was Lucy in the Sky with Linus, okay. which I think is really oh, cute. that is cute. Yeah. Lucy in the Sky with Lights, please. My son came across one not too long ago that I really like, and, and it's been done on the internet a lot. There's a song 
I'm friends with the monster that's under my bed, but people say I'm friends with the mustard that's under my bed. Mm-mm, yum. <laughs> I'm friends with the monster that's under my bed. Or the mobster. Yeah. I've heard mobster. Kids are all real fun for this one. My favorite one that Pax, my now 10-year-old, did, we referenced this when uh, Fenway's organist was on in the studio with us. He used to call it up down funk as opposed to oh. uptown funk. Uptown funk you up. Uptown funk you up. So when I went to Fenway and made a Twitter request of Josh Cantor, the organist, I requested up down funk on purpose, <laughs> which he started to use very frequently whenever other people would make that request for the organ. So that's a that's a great Mondegreen right there. When when Theo was little, he thought um, we also loved that song, and he thought the part too hot. You know, it's it's a it's a little bit of a, a swear word next, but he thought it was hot bam. Hot bam. So, <laughs> hot bam. Yeah. So that's what I always say. Too hot, hot bam. There's some <laughs> like I know children are rife for this. My friend's child Oliver is really into gorillas. And so when Cracker Island came out, he thought the line from the chorus was they taught themselves to be a cow instead of <laughs> they taught themselves to be a cult. They taught themselves to be a cow. Oh, that's cute. They didn't have as many strategies. They learned to chew their own cud. <laughs> I mean, I was obsessed with Hamilton for so long and there was one lyric that I didn't ever look up, but was it's totally clear why I would think this. Before Hamilton leaves to go on his duel where he meets his fate, he leaves a letter for his wife where he says best of wives and best of women but I always thought it was best of wines and best of women and I was like I wonder why he would say that to her on the way out I mean maybe he's just hoping like to leave her his wine cellar or he's something like that he's hoping she well in his absence <laughs> yeah best of wives and best of women I think the uh, I'd love to hear what favorite Mondegreens the listeners may have misheard over there, misheard as lyrics. Are Mondegreens always lyrics? Isn't there another word when you mishear other quotes and phrases as opposed to yes, Mondegreens? Yeah. Yes, this is a Mondegreens are one category. It's either a, something recited or sung for a Mondegreen. Uh-huh. Right? Like it's a mix up in your rendition of something. Mm-hmm. Mondegreens are distinct from eggcorns, ah. which are also good fun. An eggcorn is a word or phrase that sounds like and is mistakenly used in a seemingly logical or plausible way for another word or phrase, either on its own or as part of a set expression. So the word eggcorn is itself an eggcorn. Um, <laughs> the term eggcorn was coined by linguist Jeff Pullum. Linguists were talking. There's another linguist who said, like, hey, I've noticed this phenomenon. It's not really a mondegreen. What, you know, what, what is it? This person referred to an acorn as an egg corn. And the key to an egg corn is that it has to actually be logical. And egg corn is like it's the, you know, it's the egg that an oak tree hatches from, uh-huh. sort of. Right? There's, <laughs> there's like there's thinking, there's there's thought behind it. And corn um, and that it is kind of a grain. Yeah. Right, right. Right. I don't know. You know, an- another one is um, nip it in the butt. <laughs> so nip it in the bud. <laughs> if you're a celebrity and you have work done, we got to nip it in the butt. I liked, uh, I used to call it old timer's disease. Instead oh, of yeah. Alzheimer's disease. That's a good one. My, you know, my grandmother had That's it, so she on. was an old timer and she had Alzheimer's disease. So that one's one. The other one is uh, for all intensive purposes. Yes, that one drives me Nuts. Yeah, it I think I used nuts. to say that. And then somebody was like, hey, it's all intents and purposes. Yeah. Right. But intensive purposes. Right. right? It almost makes sense. Uh, people say um, all over a sudden. 
instead of all of a sudden. Huh. Well, I've never heard that all, one. Interesting. All, all over a sudden. Uh, one in the same instead of one and the same. Okay. Um, day made. to day with a hyphen between them. So day hyphen today ah. instead of day hyphen to hyphen day. Oh, what about this one? It was used to great effect as could be a Mondegreen too. Um, and I think some people have transitioned to think this is what it really says. Thanks to the inimitable Snoop Dogg. It's a doggy dog world. <laughs> yes. It's a doggy dog world. Yeah. There's so many yeah. hip hop references. In oh my this God. Stuff. Yeah. But it was, what, a, what a genius move to do that as a lyric. But then I've, I mean, I've really heard people say it's a doggy dog world. And I'm like, are you talking about Snoop Dogg right now? Or are you meaning to say <laughs> it is a dog eat dog world? The thing I love about that one is that a dog eat dog world evokes this image of of brutality and violence. Yeah. But a doggy dog world sounds sounds kind of friendly and, and like yeah. just a bunch of doggy dogs. Smoke a blunt <laughs> like and hang out with Martha Stewart. Hey Martha, pass me that big easy reach lighter in that bowl. Bowl of strawberries. Yeah. I mean, if if only it were really a doggy dog world yeah. and not a dog eat dog ba- world. Bow wow. Kids also come up with these sometimes. Oh, um, yeah. My daughter, she would say flat form instead of platform for <laughs> like, you know, Lego, you gonna you need a new, you need a platform. Oh. And she called it a flat form. So like, that kind of makes sense. Like what's a plat, right? But yeah. she understands like flat, it's flat. My mm-hmm. son Enzo used to call Salvation Army Sashimay Army, <laughs> which just sounds so much fancier. So we always still call, I'm going to Sashimay Army. Or um, Pax used to call a helicopter a hair coppler. And I just thought that was the greatest thing. And I still always now call it a hair coppler. That's pretty great. (laughs) It's so cute. Yeah. My oldest child is so old, I don't remember anything he said. (laughs) He's living in a doggy dog world, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Laid back. With my mind on my money and my money on my mind. In this category of funny things people say, there are two other uh, forms we can talk about. One is the uh, good old malapropism. It's really when you use a word that sounds sort of like another one that you're intending one word and you use a word that sounds sort of like it, but that is absolutely absurd in that place. Okay. You know, like when when Jesus was healing the leopards. It's my favorite of his miracles. Yeah, he healed them of their spots. <laughs> yeah, that one comes from a, a it's, it's a, got a literary origin. There was a play written in 1775. This guy named Richard Brinsley Sheridan wrote a play called The Rivals. And there was a character named Mrs. Malaprop. And she was noted for, for using malapropisms or what came to be called malapropisms in this play she called a gentleman the very pineapple of politeness instead of the very pinnacle of politeness i want there to be a pineapple of politeness who lives in a pineapple under the sea i just found one from mike tyson though what is it i might just fade into bolivian (laughs) (laughs) these are so much fun so mondegreens are sung eggcorns are close but not quite. And make sense. And malapropisms are way off. Ludicrous, and they don't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, but there's logic in an egg corn. Actually, malapropisms, did you see the Glass Onion movie? I did. Oh, yes. that The movie is filled with them. A veritable minefield of malapropisms. The infraction point. Yeah, yeah. And it actually, it's an important plot point. That was a funny experience watching that movie and noticing them and being like, huh. Hmm. And then there's there's another category 
These are spoonerisms. Do you oh, know what spoonerisms yes. are? Yes. Khalees loves yeah. these. I love spoonerisms. <laughs> Tell us what a spoonerism is, Emily Brewster. It's the transposition of usually initial sounds of two or more words, as in tons of soil for sons of toil. Uh. <laughs> That's something where it's rolling off the tongue of all of us all the time now, isn't it? Yeah, there's this there's this British clergyman named William Archibald Spooner. He was engaged in public speaking a lot, but he he did these all the time. He was famous for doing these. And yet, bravely, he was still in these positions where he was giving these public speeches frequently. According to legend, he once was addressing an audience that included Queen Victoria and he said, I carry in my bosom a half-warmed fish. Um, but it was, he really meant a half-formed wish. <laughs> and he said a half-warmed fish. I really like that and, and he did it on purpose? No, 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 no. Wow. I mean, No, he did not do it on purpose. In my family, we do them on purpose. Yeah, I think it's fun. I found a couple of really good ones. Is it kiss to marry to cuss the bride? I oh, like, nice. I like that. Yeah, that's a good one. Theo came up with a long time ago, beeping in a sled for sleeping in a bed. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if, there, if you got snow the other day, go down a, a big hill. Yeah. Everybody get out of the way. Beep, beep. Yeah. Beep, beep. Yeah. Beeping in a sled. <laughs> oh, and then you, you, you will, Monty, you will especially like this one. He came up with, well, I'll let you, let you do it. It was for party favor. <laughs> a farty paver? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Is that, that sounds... what I smell when the rain starts to come in the summertime? No, it's just oh. a description of my partner. A farty paver. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are really fun, Emily Brewster. And uh, thanks again to the Montague Word Police and for suggesting uh, Mondegreens as a topic. If you have a misheard song lyric, a Mondegreen, a misheard but very close to actually true phrase or word, Egg corn, a malapropism, which is way off, or and a, or spoonerism, or a yeah, yeah, or a spoonerism, yeah. Send it to us at thefab413 at nepm.org, and maybe we'll read them on the air. And other questions for the word nerd who joins us every Wednesday, we'd love to have those too. Spoonerisms are the best; they are my favorite. Yeah. Where are the residents and businesses of around Quabbin Reservoir getting their water? The answer seems obvious, but is actually the topic of heated debate on and off Beacon Hill. And we'll discuss the matter with NEPM reporter Alden Bourne next. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. In the early 1900s, four western Massachusetts towns disappeared from the map. They were flooded to build the Quabbin Reservoir to provide drinking water mostly to Boston and dozens of surrounding communities. Communities that I like to call... Boston-ish. Boston by proxy. But those towns closest to the Quabbin don't have access to that fresh, clean water supply. The NEPM News Department's Alden Bourne has been reporting on water quality issues that these surrounding towns are facing and what the Beacon Hill delegation here is aiming to do about it. His piece will debut in All Things Considered later this afternoon. Thanks for joining us today, Alden. Happy to be here. For those who don't know, Alden Bourne used to work on 60 Minutes. He's been a great reporter. I've known you for a long time, and I think the work that you do is spectacular. I'm glad to be a colleague with you here at NEPM. Tell us about the history of these reservoirs 
surrounding the Boston area prior to the development of the Quabbin. So, so the um, the search for enough water for Boston has really been. Um, it's all about uh, making a move uh, repeatedly west. So in the mid-1800s, Cochituate Reservoir was built in Framingham, uh, Wayland, and Natick. And in fact, in October of 1848, 100,000 people gathered on the Boston Common to celebrate the arrival of water from the reservoir. Um, but because of the growth of indoor plumbing and immigration, there wasn't enough water for the city. And so the Wachusett Reservoir had to be built northeast of uh, Worcester. And then pretty quickly it became clear that that wasn't going to be enough water. So they had to move further west. And in 1927, the Swift River Act was passed by the legislature, the Massachusetts legislature, which called for the diverting of water from the Swift River and um, basically taking over the Swift River Valley, clearing out four towns of all people, vegetation and buildings, flooding it to provide water for Boston and the towns surrounding it. None of those towns did Senator Ed Markey visit in his entire time as senator, which was one of the accusations that uh, Representative Joe Kennedy leveled against Ed Markey in their campaign, which I thought was hilarious. He listed <sighs> Enfield, Massachusetts, one of the towns Ed Markey's never even been to. It's underwater. That's why unless he's <laughs> snorkeling or scuba diving. That's why he isn't there. But the four whole towns, the people were uprooted. I think a lot of people here know this story. Growing right. up in the Boston area, oh no, I heard of the you Quabbin. You hear about the Quabbin. You don't hear about how the Quabbin got made. Yeah, you hear good fishing, and that's it. In that, but this Absolutely. is this is a, a real deal. And Are there you was allowed to fish there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You okay. can rent boats. People love it. Um, a lot of the the genesis of your reporting has to do with a book by somebody who lives in 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 the general vicinity. Tell us about who you talked to for your piece. So I book. talked to an author named Elena Palladino, who's written a book about this. Um, and in 2015, she bought a house in Ware, Massachusetts, and she'd heard that it had been referred to as the Quabbin House, but she didn't know why. And she did some research, and she found out that a woman named Marion Smith, who lived in the town of Enfield and had to leave the town of Enfield because the reservoir was being built, basically recreated elements of her house in a new house in Ware. She took out um, the main uh, she. Re rebuilt the main staircase, trim, doors, all the stuff because she was apparently so upset about uh, having to leave her home. And you have a clip from uh, your interview with her that didn't make it in the piece that we'll hear later this afternoon. You want to set this up a little bit? Well, it's just this uh, this farewell ball that was held uh, in April 1938, the, uh, the, um, last, uh, the last night that these four cities um, uh, ex existed, basically, before they were uh, disincorporated. And um, um, uh, Palladino just talks about um, what it was like for this woman, Marion Smith, to have to leave her, her home. Let's hear that clip. I think it was very, very difficult for Marion to leave. She was the last in her family to survive and be alive in that last decade while the reservoir was being built. She had to make all of the final decisions about exhuming her relatives who were buried in valley cemeteries, deciding where they would be buried. She had to make decisions about where to go. And, you know, at that point in time, she was in her 70s. And I think it was difficult to pick up a, a whole life and the lives of all of her ancestors and decide on a new place to live for the remaining years of her life. That's Elena Palladino, who was speaking to NEPM's Alden Bourne, who joins us to talk about the disincorporation of the towns that have become the Quabbin Reservoir. I'll also recommend a book called Letting Swift River Go. It's a children's book by Jane Yolen, another local author. It's heartbreaking and depicts this ball uh, that Elena was speaking of. Mm -hmm. 
In oh. case people are interested in the book, I think it's called Lost Towns of the Swift River Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we may have her on and have a, I can't wait to read her book. So uh, part of the issue is with PFAS in the the current water systems that are going to the towns that don't have access to the Quabbins, uh, to the Quabbins water. What are some of the other water sources in Western Mass? We heard about the reservoirs that were built to have waterways go out east, but what's here? Yeah, where do the town, surrounding towns around the Quabbin get their water from, if not the Quabbin? I, I, th- I think there's basically two two ways they, they get their water. Either they have their own water system. Town of Ware has what's called a um, has what's called a cistern, which is basically like a giant uh, dirt uh, giant chamber with a dirt floor, and they have different wells pumping into that, mm-hmm. and then they have pipes going to different people's, you know, to people's houses. But there's been water quality issues with that water where there's been iron and manganese in the water, and so that's caused uh, issues at, at times with uh, brown or cloudy water. Um, the, and I think it's basically, in other towns like New Salem, they just have well water. So that's why this PFAS thing happened at the, uh, at the school. Gotcha. How come, I don't know if your reportage covered this at all, but is it just because the Quabbin is so big that it makes itself immune in some ways from the PFAS? It's got so much surrounding preserved land? Or is there some filtering that's happening with the preserved land that kind of gets some of that away from the immediate potency of the water? Or portability of the water. I mean, my my take is that that the Quabbin is um, such an important water source for the city of Boston that the MWRA, which is the Mass Water Resources Authority, is very very clear about what can and can't happen on that land. Whereas, if you're talking about PFAS and there's firefighting foam or it comes from somewhere else from a fire department, there's there's no PFAS leaching out of a fire department, you know, anywhere near the Quabbin. I mean, as far as I know, like, I mean, it's just like, it's pretty strict what can happen there. Yeah. We're speaking with NEPM reporter Alden Bourne, whose piece about this Quabbin story in the water for the Quabbin will air later this afternoon on All Things Considered. And we're talking about how the surrounding towns around the Quabbin don't have access to the water that the Quabbin does have and that there are problems, PFAS, manganese and other things. Uh, our Beacon Hill delegation, including our guests from last week's show, State Senator Joe Comerford, uh, is working to try to uh, remediate some of this damage and maybe even gain access to some of these towns to the water that is in essentially their backyard. What is this bill that's been proposed? So, so the bill she's proposing would do a few things. I think with some of the key provisions are it would uh, provide it would create a trust fund um, that would basically create a fee of five cents for every thousand gallons of water that leave the Quabbin, and that money would go to help the towns around the Quabbin. I would also help cha- them do specifically with water issues, or would it be just give the, it would it would uh, generate three point five million dollars a year? I think some of the money could go to the towns, some could go to like different agencies that help the towns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because um, right now these towns are doing pilot p- payment in lieu of taxes for the use of the water, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's but that's only on the land above the water, any land that's under the water. So the, her bill would also change that. So all that land that got flooded that's underwater, these towns would receive pilot payments based on that as well. Is there mm-hmm. an estimate of how much land that actually is? Uh, there probably is. I don't have it. <laughs> yeah. And so what about gaining access to this water? Is, is that even a possibility that they could somehow tap into the Quabbin Reservoir, or is that not even being proposed? I mean, it, it, it sounds like an easy solution, but I think it's, it's, it's fairly challenging. The, the town of Ware in 2021 looked at either building a new filtration plant to deal with their water quality issues. And then at that time, it was estimated to cost $16 million. They had a study done that says um, connecting to the Quabbin would cost $22 million. 
So it's just, um, for whatever reason, it's pretty pretty challenging just for all the equipment and piping, I guess, that would be required. We're, we mentioned the other reservoirs that are around the Boston area, the celebration on the Boston Common when the first reservoir was tapped into the city. Those are still continuing to be used in Boston in addition to the Quabbin Reservoir? I mean, I know I know the Wachusa Reservoir is continue continue to be used. Um, I don't think the other ones are are as active as as I mean, the Wachusa and the Quabbin are basically the two main water sources now for the city of Boston. When you're talking to the author Alina Palladino, who uh, has this book about this Quabbin House, or other residents in the surrounding areas in Ware and the different administrators in the towns, do, do they feel that this is a a an issue of us versus them? Does it seem like we've been forsaken in Western Mass in some ways by Beacon Hill for our water? I I, I think there's a sense that um, there's there's a fair amount of uh, resentment in Western Massachusetts for um, people not understanding the sacrifices that were made. Uh, there's this notion that if you ask the average person in Boston where their water comes from, they may say something like, uh, "It's out. It comes out of the faucet, and that's all I know." Yeah. I mean, this is kind of what I've what I've what I've heard. Um, and just that they want, um, you know, they want to they want to have um, more help given what these communities are dealing with, and the fact that they can't really develop this land that that need like they I think they agree that it's serving a good purpose, and they're they're happy to be, they're proud that they're playing this role for the for the state, but they want more help. Do you think that this bill H eight nine seven has a chance of passing and? helping to alleviate some of the damage that has been done to the community surrounding the Quabbin? I mean, I'd, I'd say it has a chance. I, I haven't talked to, to Boston area legislators to know what they're, what they're thinking, but it's there's got always a chance. A, there's always a chance. There's always a chance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, especially with I'm looking at Section 6 where it's specifically looking at other river basins to develop in, in efforts to alleviate some of this. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, and again, what, you, what you're talking about, this whole notion of looking into um, what it would take, because the interesting thing is that the MWRA, the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, has been exploring adding all these towns north and south and west of Boston. And so the question is, what would it take to get these towns in Western Massachusetts access to? So mm -hmm. that's what's actually being explored now. Alden Bourne is a reporter for New England Public Media, any PM. You can hear his full piece about this story at 5.50 this afternoon on All Things Considered. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we're going to a butcher shop just north of the Tofu Curtain. We'll get a tour at Sutter Meats and see how sustainability can lead to everyone eating more meat ethically with owner Terry Ragasa and his amazing team. And we'll hear more about the reopening of the Iron Horse and about a Chinese New Year celebration happening at Smith Folk in Northampton. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. Yeah, we will.